Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to talk briefly about a past guest, Jesse Ball, and an offer he has made to listeners on behalf of the program. I suspect many of you know who Jesse Ball is since he was recently a guest on Between the Covers and yet is already the second most listened to episode of all time. If you don't know him, you should definitely check out our conversation and explore his work. Jesse Ball sent me copies of his 2006 book that he co-wrote with the Icelandic poet and novelist Thordis Bjornstadir called Vera and Linus to offer as gifts for people who support the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. Vera and Linus is a gorgeous object, full of illustrations, and made with care by an Icelandic small press. The story is composed of a mixture of what could be called prose poetry, flash fiction, and sketches, and Publishers Weekly says of Vera and Linus, the light touch and often archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly, many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. Vera and Linus is out of print. The Icelandic publisher no longer exists, so this is a rare memento. For people who are not already supporters of the program, if you begin ongoing support of the show at $2 an episode through Patreon, that is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash between the covers, you can receive a copy of Vera and Linus. If you're already a supporter, either via PayPal or Patreon, you likewise can get a copy by increasing your support by $1 an episode, or if you're a PayPal supporter, beginning a Patreon support at $1 an episode. Again, this is at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer Peter Rock. Rock is the author of nine books. These include the story collection The Unsettling, which was selected and introduced by Brian Evanson for a Pharos edition publication, a collection Daniel Handler calls perhaps the best short story collection he has ever read. Rock is also the author of the book My Abandonment, of which Ursula K. Le Guin says... Peter Rock shows he is a master at making strange behavior and strange situations utterly believable 
and filling them with unbearable suspense. Rick Bass calls his book The Shelter Cycle as luminous as it is sinister and innocent. And Joanne Beard says his young adult novel Clickitat is eerily wonderful, remarkable, and disturbing, just like childhood. Peter Rock is a graduate of Yale University and teaches writing here in Portland, Oregon, in the English department of Reed College. He's a recipient of a Wallace Stegner Fellowship at Stanford University, a National Endowment of the Arts Fellowship, and a Guggenheim Fellowship, which he used to bring his latest multidisciplinary project, the one he's here to talk about today, into being. This latest book from Counterpoint Press is called Spells, a novel within photographs. Before Spells was a book, it was an art installation, a coupling not only of narrative and photography, but also of sound and video. Uh, Spells, the book, does not use photographs merely to illustrate the story Peter Rock wrote, but instead the photographs came first. In other words, the photographs were used to to generate the story. Oregon Book Award winner Carrie Luna says of Spells, the result is a novel unlike any I've read before that weaves elements of realism, fable, prose poetry, and essay through the supporting structure of images to create something beautiful and unsettling. Welcome to Between the Covers, Peter Rock. Thank you. It's delightful to be here. So in the introduction to Spells, you you discuss the origin story of the project, which is two-pronged. The first prong, a job you had in an art museum 20 years ago, and the second, a more recent conversation you had with a photographer, a person who posed some difficult artistic and metaphysical questions to you. So maybe we can start with you fleshing out these these two parts of the origin story of how Spells became this unusual project. Okay. Um, yeah, there's there are a couple different stories. There are a few, um, and I guess I'll take those backward. Um, I was... I guess just procrastinating, and I think one of the things I've learned in all this time writing is that all people who want to write procrastinate, and and part of the trick is figuring out how to make that procrastination productive. So one way I procrastinate is to look for photographs for covers of books when they're almost done. And when I was working on the shelter cycle, I was almost done with it, and I was looking at pictures of raccoons because it had a different title initially. And... I contacted a photographer and I said, um, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to, if you let me, show this photograph to the publisher as the kind of thing I think would work on the cover. And they're going to humor me for about six months. And then at the last minute, they'll tell me they can't use it and they've changed it and it's too late to talk about it. Mm. Um, And he said, that's great. That's fine. And uh, this is a photographer I didn't know named Peter McCullough who was down down in the Bay Area. And he wrote back to me a while later and said, listen, I'll trade you a print of that photograph for a book if you want. And I said, that's a terrible trade for you. So I'll take it. And he sent me not only a print of the photograph of the raccoon, but a couple other photographs and then a whole bunch of snapshots he thought I might be interested in for some reason. And this letter, which was the longest letter that I'd received since, um, I guess, the high school girlfriends of Salt Lake City of the 80s. I think some of it was handwritten, some of it was typed, and it was full of these questions, which were huge questions like, you know, when did you know this is what you were supposed to do? Um, When can you recognize that something has gone wrong in your work, and how have you reacted to this in the past? And then it was mixed in with these 
other questions, which were sort of like, how did you know your wife was the woman for you forever? <laughs> and, you know, can you build a house with your hands? Would you like to? And uh, it was coming at an interesting moment for me, which is uh, maybe shortly as finishing the shelter cycle and my abandonment, which was then and, and is now and probably will continue to be the most successful of my books. There was it was the first time ever that people were curious about what I was going to do or or um, where there were expectations for what I should do. And so I thought it was probably a good time to do something that no one wanted me to do or to work on some private projects. Hmm. And I was trying to figure out what was going on with me at that moment um, or what I should do next. And I was thinking hard about it. And these questions seemed to be questions I should try to answer. So I set aside about 20 minutes a day, which was all I had, to to write an answer to this letter. And I, and I was writing, really writing to myself because I didn't know him. And amid that letter, I told the story of how I worked as a security guard in an art museum in upstate New York. And it was a job that was blindingly boring in many ways. And it was a job that many people quit. And it was a museum. It's a beautiful museum, but it was often empty. And when people were in it, we weren't allowed to talk to them. And we weren't allowed to write anything. It was before phones, which really would change that job. Um, and uh, so what I would do is I would just try to stare into the paintings or into the sculptures or the, the artwork, and I'd try to make up stories. And I'd try to hold as much as I could in my mind. And it was a building that had six floors, and there were seven guards, I think, at a time. So there'd be one person on every floor, and one person would be on break. And so every half hour, whoever was on break went to the top floor, and everyone went down a floor. And I would furtively, with a stub of pencil on the fire stairs, like write down as many ideas as I could before I arrived at the next floor. And then when I got down to the bottom of my break, I would just write everything I could, and then I would start again. And at the end of the day, I had all of these, um, had all of these things to write about. And when I wrote this down to Peter McCullough, I thought, that's exactly the kind of thing I should be doing. Um, that is, um, you know, I want to be provoked. I want to write something that I haven't written before. And I want to collaborate in a way that I haven't before, too. So that's kind of a long version. But those were some of the some of the first origin stories of how it came to be. Yeah. And when you decided you wanted to sort of capture that imaginative process from when you were in the art museum and to create a book that was a collaboration with mm -hmm. photographers. Right. Um, it's because it, people who can't see the book, the color photography in the book is as prominent as, as the text. And you can feel that there's, there's a partnership happening between you and, and, the, and the people you chose to collaborate with. Uh, how did that happen? So how did you go from this strange letter writing with one photographer to um, picking photographers and then individual photographs mm -hmm. to then start as your template to imagine stories? It was I mean, it, in retrospect, it's like like anything, it's kind of easy to be really clear and to see that, you know, you knew what you were doing when part of the strategy for this this project all along was that I didn't know what I was doing and I, and I didn't know that it would be a book and we could talk about that later. I just wanted to write some things that would be surprising to me and it was something that I didn't necessarily believe was going to be for other people's consumption. I was just in my basement working on it um, and I didn't know that the pieces would be connected at all. I didn't know what would become of it. But I did have a number of photographers I was interested in, and I had a list. And I, and the first thing I did was I asked Peter McCullough, I said, would you be interested in 
in doing this? And he said, sure. And then I asked his opinion about photographers, and he made a list. And I kind of just wrote to the first five people. I decided five was a good number and said, basically, I want to work with your photographs. Is that okay? I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know. Um, you know, we can talk about it later if it becomes something, but I just don't know. If you'd send me 25 or 30 images, that'd be great. I mean, the first thing was the first five people were really happy to hear from me and really eager to collaborate. And that was maybe the main, like, greatest thing about the project was just how cool people are and how generous they were and how down they were for whatever thing it was that I wanted to do. And so... That said, some of them sent me 25 or 30 images, and some of them sent me more like 100. And that made it very difficult to choose, because I thought, maybe I'll choose five a piece, and that would work. Um, but then I realized that if I really didn't want to know where I was going or what I was doing, there'd be no way for me to choose. So I just chose one photograph from each uh, of, the, of the photographers, and I started there. And then that's sort of how I proceeded. I just chose five at a time. And then I would try to work on those five stories at a time. And once I got about 13 or 14 in, I saw that a lot of things were um, becoming connected or characters were continuous, and that created um, different pressures in terms of what I would choose. So if you look at the book, um, it's not completely a coincidence, but it is sort of strange to me that so many of the photographs that I was given from different photographers contained, you know, so many bears, um, so many dogs, so many um, decapitated heads, you know, by the frame. So as these were these became questions in the book, um, you know, how how to account for the fact that there are all these bodies without heads, there are all these heads without bodies, um, how to account for the fact that if characters are continuous and I don't have pictures of the same people over and over again. You know, how do you account for why someone looks so different in a story um, than they did before? So those transformations also sort of drove the plot. But I was curious about other, if you had other constraints in the, in the process of, of writing. Uh, for instance, as you mentioned, when you realized it started becoming a book that was continuous mm -hmm. and you had that tension around preserving a narrative cohesion while also having um, sort of discrete, stand, somewhat standalone pieces mm -hmm. and photographs that aren't in real life connected to each other. Um, when you had that, that constraint, were you looking at all of the unselected photographs? Did you allow yourself to look at all the as-of-yet unselected photographs and move them around? Or were you ever writing between two photographs that you hadn't yet selected? Or was it always one photograph? I don't know if these questions are making sense, but I was curious how much freedom you were allowed with, with the things that hadn't yet been established into the book in figuring mm -hmm. out your next step. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many ways to answer that question, because initially I made color copies of all the photographs, and I just hung them all around the room where I work. Okay. And so I had them everywhere, and I was, so I was sort of wallpapering my room and changing the atmosphere in that way. And so I started to, as I was traveling through the book, be aware of possibilities. Um, and a lot of times I was sort of between, you know, and I was writing five things at a time, typically. So I was moving back and forth. Um, and then some things changed as I got deeper into the project. So um, I think there's a story called The Daughter and the Dog, 
which is the first image is an image by Colleen Plum, which is an image of, it looks to be a man digging a grave. Um, and it is a man digging a grave for a dog. And I, and I started to write that story and I got so stuck. Um, I was so into the image and I was so into what I had written, but I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen. And I was looking around the room and I saw another photograph um, by, by Sarah LaFleur Vetter, which is, a, which is a photograph of a, of a naked girl and a dog um, playing in a, in, in a yard, I guess. And, I, and it was the first time I thought, and this seems like, and in a way, when you think of all of the f- kind of text and image-based things and video, this project is so lame and lo-fi and I was so and I constrained <laughs> I constrained myself in so many ways that, but that like weirdly was the first time I thought well wait a minute what if I had two photographs in in a story and so that you know some there are I think 31 stories and 43 images but it was pretty late in the game that I realized I'm going to try mixing this up a little bit more adding photographs in and it did help me to find a different dimension um, I, I would say also that Pretty late, too, once I had about, I don't know, 30 stories, I I kind of could see what I thought a plot might be like and how it might be coherent. And that was the only time when I asked the the photographers for specific images that I didn't have, that I knew existed. And they gave them to me, and I wrote another 15 stories or so, and I thought, this is, like, if I write more, I can make this coherent, I can make it work. And... After a few months, I realized I didn't need more stories. I just needed less. I needed it to be more fragmentary, and I needed to um, stop imposing my will in, in quite that way. So that was a good thing to learn, too. So none, some of those stories I like a lot, but they didn't seem like they were part of it. I guess the last thing I would say, there's a million constraints, but one is that so much of my work is um, my other books bleed into each other and characters recur. I wanted this to be completely separate. I just wanted to stop as sort of my first maybe middle-aged book where I was like, okay, I'm leaving all that behind. <laughs> I'm, I'm writing something that is, that is completely different and new. With this tension between you're wanting to preserve some semblance of narrative, but also have this sort of fragmentary discontinuity, do you feel like um, the dreamlike quality of this book and sort of the loosening of what we would consider a, an expected cause and effect that ha- that isn't in this book mm-hmm. and this bleeding between mm-hmm. living and the dead, mm-hmm. um, awake and asleep, mm-hmm. do you feel like that's a product of this collaboration that arose from it or is it something that you came to the project with um i think it's both uh, of course it's sort of um i was very much aware in you know this in teaching but also in people's reaction to my work that when there is something something we've been talking a lot about in, in my classes lately like what is a dream and how do you deal with it in writing um because of course when you're dreaming most of the time you don't realize you're dreaming and that's the pleasure of it um, and it's the same, like, why do we remember things? Why do we write about a memory? We want to feel the way that we did then. We want to forget where we are for a period of time. Um, but whenever I've written something that has a fantastic element to it or where it, it finds a register that seems as if it's beyond reality, oftentimes the reaction is, you know, well, but what's really happening? Or, you know, where is the dreamer? When is someone going to wake up? Or what is reality in this situation? And that seems like, to me, not that interesting a question. Um, and I see these things as so continuous. So one thing that I wanted to play with in the book was, you know, the, tr- trying to 
subvert some of these traditional ways of understanding things and, and to play around a little bit with cause and effect or to, you know, allow a fair number of resurrections, you know, allow heads to continue to talk, um, to allow, you know, what is even a person and what is an animal to be interchangeable in, in some ways. And so, I mean, and, and part of this can seem so conceptual and so uptight, but really one of the main instigating factors of this book is I just wanted to have fun. I just, you know, I wanted to write things that were full of energy and that surprised me and that were significantly different because I think one thing that we typically do when we write a book is try to find a consistency, um, whether that's a consistency of voice or a consistency of reality level or, you know, various things. So I wanted to try to write something that took into account a lot of different ways of telling a story and tried to like crash them into each other in various ways. You've talked about you know, all these constraints that are in the book, but you've also talked about the constraints of your life that produced the book, that mm-hmm. you were a new parent, that you were working full-time, and that your wife was a full-time worker, and that you had to find a, a form to fit the constraint of your life. And I was curious if this this theme of constraints, if you were interested in in the playfulness that is like it's like the Alipo movement or other constraint-based mm-hmm, writers, if mm-hmm. those were people like Calvino or Parekh or Cano, were those, are those writers that you, that speak to you, or was that not really something that you felt connected to? Because I think of them as both. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's a weirdness. Mm-hmm. There's a conceptual mm-hmm. aspect, right? But there's also a super playfulness to what they're doing at the same yeah. time. Yeah, I think those are writers I admire, but I don't feel any kind of real comradeship with you know i feel like those are writers who are smarter than i am and whose whose intellectualism is is forefront a lot of the time um but i think that the the idea of what they're doing and the idea of constraint you know as as i tell students you know everyone has a certain amount of energy and a certain amount of talent and when we start telling stories our um our inclination is to try to be everywhere at once and to try to satisfy everything. But if we're going to find depth in a story, we have to find a limit. And that limit is often in structure. It's often in time. It's often in space. It's often in point of view. And I think to embrace a limit is to get as deep as you can go. And to recognize a limit also is part of it. And that, I mean, I don't really see there to be a really easy line between what I do when I'm writing and what I do when I'm living and to recognize the limits of, of your life, which is um, mortality on the one hand, but also just day to day. I think it's easy as someone who wishes to write to always be putting that off and always be thinking like I'm paying a bunch of dues right now at work and I have to spend you know as much time as I can with my children whom I love, but eventually I'm going to have more time to write than I do right now. Um, and that especially if one talks about writing a lot, which I think is pretty dangerous. And, and if one is a teacher, um, it can r- really lead to a sense of feeling like a fraud. So trying to stay in touch with actually writing is is tricky. So when I was working on The Shelter Cycle, which was a, a long process involving a lot of interviews and a lot of people, um, it became a, a document that was over a thousand pages long. And I'd go into my study and I would look at this pile of paper and just, I had 20 minutes or so, and I would just kind of shake my head or weep a little. Then I'd go back upstairs. And so I wanted to conceive of something that, yes, I could, I could work on something while I was teaching. If I had 10 minutes, I could think about it. Um, I think 
trying to recognize how the pressures of our life are going to change or, you know, how, you know, I, I used to, when I was growing up, I, I, I had this idea that being a writer was kind of a destiny or, or an identity that people had. And that might be true for some people, but I think it's the first thing that people should try to get over in a way. Hmm. Um, and I've just been trying to think harder about, you know, how to be a person who likes to write. And I'm not exaggerating, like, who likes to write. Like, I love to do it, and I want to work in conditions that I love. Like, I don't want to suffer for the next 30 years, 40 years, or whatever. <laughs> uh, but And even recently, you know, in the last year, uh, I've gotten a dog. And the dog totally slows me down. You know, I'm used to riding my bike everywhere and trying to figure out, like, now I have less time suddenly, and I spend all this time with this animal. You know, how can I spend these walks as a way to generate material or how can slowing down and having to have conversations with strangers all the time um, inform possibilities of things I might do. Well, maybe this is a good time for people to hear some of the pros. Let's start with um, to begin is to start. And if you want to, you can describe the photograph that comes with it or not. Mm -hmm. It's up to you. Yeah, the photograph, and this is not, it's the first piece in the book and, and it's not the first piece I wrote, of course, um, I kind of wanted a beginning that was a series of, of warnings or a series of invitations. And the photograph is a photograph by Peter McCullough, which shows the back of a man's head going into a tent. And there's a long zipper that has been unzipped, and he seems to be welcomed into this tent. Um, but it's a pretty dark photograph. It's black and white. It's a little bit scary, too, I think. Um, and so I was looking at this, and I was trying to think, what is going to come out of me based on this? And it's a very funny um it doesn't sound that funny, but it's, it's a funny piece in that I think collaboration works in so many ways. And when I look at this um, piece, I can see that I'm using the words of John Cage and I'm using the words of Ralph Waldo Emerson and that, you know, everything is a kind of collaboration. Um, I'm not a huge believer in inspiration as such. So I'm reacting to the photograph, but I'm also reacting to things that I was reading at the time. To begin is to start. An idea is not a thing you have. It cannot be possessed like that, like an envelope or a letter. A risk is a thing you take, and a decision is a thing you make. A decision is not so fragile, not so tenuous as a promise, though both are things you make, beginnings. Sometimes the invitation comes from another person or another animal, a bear or dog or ghost. Sometimes it comes from oneself. It does not matter if an invitation comes from without or arises from within. Be still, yet ready to strike, poised and taut. A snake has more than 200 teeth pointed backward to zip you up, to bite and hold you securely. Security is always a misapprehension. You can slip away. You can take a risk. Be decisive. Power ceases in the instant of repose, and the inside of you never stops, your heart circling your blood around and around right now, 2,000 gallons in your lifetime. Wind blows in and out of you across the deserts and mountains. It slams doors in the middle of the night, wakes you with a start. We've been listening to writer Peter Rock read from his latest book, Spells, a novel within photographs. Well, you mentioned something about how there are words in here from, say, Emerson. Mm -hmm. And we don't discover this actually until we get to the acknowledgments and spells right. that um, this isn't solely a collaboration between you and five photographers, mm -hmm. but in a sense it's a, it's a 
collaboration with you and I'm uh, presuming writers that you admire, um, as you've included words from folk tales from John Cage, from Kawabata, from Chekhov, unattributed within the text itself, mm-hmm. um, weaving other writers' words into your own words. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm curious about that project. If you could talk a little bit about what that means to you and what you feel like it's doing to to the text of spells. I mean, I guess cynically you could say I'm trying to claim the words of writers who are better writers than I am as my own, um, and that is kind of true. I think um, it's honest in the sense that these are the things that are resonant with what I'm trying to do, or these are the things that that are provoking me. Um, I think that we do this kind of thing unconsciously all the time, um, and some of this is unconscious and some of it's conscious. It's hard to know. Um, exactly. It's certainly a kind of homage to writers who have been helpful to me um, in terms of limitation. Like my favorite book probably is Kawabata's Palm of the Hand Stories. And uh, and there's definitely, you know, in in one story, Illuminations, it pretty much rips up rips off the first part of his story, The Grasshopper and the Bell Cricket, which is a story that I just can't read without crying. It's so beautiful. Um, and then it sort of ends similarly to Chekhov's story, Gusev, which is you know one of my favorite endings of a story. Um, so that kind of mashup is happening too. And I think part of it, um, and I have a book coming out in you know, 2019, I guess, which involves a lot of more personal information and artifacts of my life, whether it's letters I wrote to people or conversations I had with people. And that makes me super uncomfortable. And I think that um, a lot of, you know, usually when I write something that I'm proud of, there are parts of that process that I feel really deeply uncomfortable with. With this book, um, I was really writing it for myself, and I didn't know that it was going to be a book or that it was going to surface in a way like this and that I would have to admit that I was using these things because, um, you know, when we read a book, it's ours as much as it is the other person's, you know, and the the context in which we understand it. Um, You know, when I read Kawabata, I'm reading it as someone who was born in 1967 in Salt Lake City, um, not as someone from Japan who understands the context of, of that work in the same way. Um, so I think as a, as a really personal project and, and, um, and I guess in some ways that's what I want to write is a really personal project. And I kind of want to read people writing things for themselves too. Um, so I couldn't see taking it out. I like this kind of thing. I wanted to be honest about it in the acknowledgments at least, but I also think interrupting what you're doing to say, and by the way, these aren't all my words, um, is sort of also you know too much of an interruption. What's interesting about it too is when you were talking earlier about not feeling anymore like being a writer is this like special calling <laughs> and maybe being less precious about when you write. Um, it seems like writing versus other art forms. Like when I think of, say, someone who becomes a pianist, they're going to play Beethoven and Chopin and Mozart Mm -hmm. and as part of becoming who they are, Mm -hmm. whereas there's this mythos around the writer Mm -hmm. that they're alone and that all their words are coming out of thin air, that it's pure genius and inspiration. Mm -hmm. But in a way, it feels like by engaging with these words, you're acknowledging sort of like not only your community, but like where you're, how you're able to Mm -hmm. stand where you are now as a writer because of the work that these other writers have Mm -hmm. done. 
Is that does that make any sense? Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, and I think most people who write they they write because they love to read. You know, they came to storytelling through reading or having people read to them, as I did. And so, I mean, that's that's definitely a big part of it. And recognizing, I think, when when one has written enough, you can look back and see when you think it's worked out, or you can see what like what it is that you were doing that you didn't realize back then. And I recognized when I was heading into spells that so much of what I've written is a reaction to something, whether it's an historical event or, you know, it's, it's a lot of times a historical event, but photographs in this case. But I'm so interested in reaction, which, you know, putting myself in a situation or seeing what my curiosity draws me to and then just seeing what comes out of me as material as opposed to being in control of it. And so trusting oneself to wander, I guess, is, is part of the process. And you say this interesting thing about the book that... Um, while on the one hand, the, there is a forward-moving narrative, a loosely forward-moving narrative with continuous um, characters that s- start with mm-hmm. the book and end end in the book, but that you also believe that people can enter the book anywhere they want mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah. So I was hoping you could talk about that, that the order and progression, while there is one, mm-hmm. is of less importance mm-hmm. to you and how you envision a reader engaging with the book than would be typical if someone picked up another one of your novels, for instance. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, yes, it could, it could be said that this is a book about three friends um, who are maybe 20 years old, who live in a city like Portland. Um, but then it is a lot of other kinds of books, too. And I think there are certainly pieces that are much less narratively driven um, and that are much more voice driven. There are folk tales. There's a essay written by fourth grader about elephants. Um, and so I think it's, you know, anything talking about curiosity, anything, whether it's the photograph or, or the text that draws a reader in, you can go in any direction. I was just, um, talking yesterday in class about Alice Monroe and, um, Alice Monroe is of course a genius and such a great writer and a writer that, you know, I don't know if I've learned more from anyone than from Alice Monroe. I think our sensibilities are so different, which is maybe one reason I'm able to learn from her. I think writers that we feel some sort of similarity with, it's harder to see that. But, um, in, in the preface to her selected story, she says that, a, you know, a, a story should be like a house and, uh, it should, you should be able to enter it anywhere. And she talks about reading stories never from beginning to end, that it should be solid enough that you can go in any direction. And, uh, and I feel, I feel that way, you know, often it's, it's best to, for some reader to come through the window or go down the chimney. It could be for some reader. And this, this goes for, uh, I guess I'll slow down and say, when you're writing something, there's a huge difference between the material and the story. And a lot of times figuring out what to do with the material is the storytelling. And a lot of times early on, we misapprehend our writing of material as the writing of the story. So when we're writing something, we don't go into every room that we know about. We don't enter at the beginning necessarily. Um, But readers, I think, especially given how much time and how little attention span so many people have, um, you know, they should be able to jump around. They should be able to come in. And the incremental way this book was written hopefully welcomes people to deal with it incrementally. And the idea of the house is interesting because it troubles the idea of time in a story. Mm-hmm. If all of these rooms exist at the same time and you could start 
or finish in a different place. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's such a master of, of um, really weird choices around time, I think. I mean, mm-hmm. she's, she seems unheralded as an experimental writer in, in, in some ways. And in, I think in some ways it's so, um, it's similarly maybe to writers like Cheever. Like I love, stu- I, li- I love writers who just get weirder over the course of their life and, and, you know, kind of master a form and then start taking it apart. And I, I often teach Monroe when I talk about moving in time, because I think, you know, of course the reasons we move in time in a story or place are usually revolving around anxiety. Like we don't want to be there anymore. We don't know what to do which is how we operate in our lives as well. Uh, But Alice Monroe always stays in a scene as long as she wants. When she goes into a a flashback, she stays there so long you forget it's a flashback, and it becomes so crucial that those writers, I mean, those those characters in the past don't know they're in the past. (laughs) They don't know that there's a future. And the main thing I think maybe that I learned from Alice Monroe is how good she is at transitions. You know, she sets up these different different pieces of time but her transitions are always like the next day or two hours later and i think when we begin writing we always want it to be more subtle than that mm-hmm. and i think she recognizes that that's not a dramatic point knowing where you are and when you are is something the reader just wants to know so they can deal with what's actually complicated mm-hmm. well i want to return to something you briefly mentioned the way in which a lot of your novels are connected and you don't see spells as part of that that continuity. So Carrie Luna in her interview with you at Tin House talks about this, the intersection and overlap and conversation between your books. For instance, she points out that there's a scene in The Bewildered that you retell from a different perspective in My Abandonment, and there's a thread from My Abandonment that becomes a narrative pivot point in mm-hmm. The Shelter Cycle. And um, that you told her that you used different characters and events from previous books as touchstones uh, or places to move forward from in your new project, uh, which reminds me in a way of like when, when I was having a conversation with David Mitchell, he has the idea of the Uber novel for him, mm-hmm. where like each novel of his is a chapter in his Uber novel. Mm-hmm. And there's these connections, some obvious and some really mm-hmm. submerged between the books. Mm-hmm. So there's a spell cast between mm-hmm. the books. And in a way, your book spells is, is breaking that spell or mm-hmm. that you had this, uh, mm-hmm. you made this attempt mm-hmm. to break the mm-hmm. spell between, between right. your books. Right. But nevertheless, um, you've also talked about how things that you discovered in your book right before, mm-hmm. so the shelter cycle, right. um, informed some of your feelings when you were writing spells. I mean, it'd be inevitable that you would have right. some life experiences right. that would. So like, I'm curious about your reaction to writing about mysticism mm-hmm. and about a, a an unusual cult or religion uh-huh. um, in Montana. Right. And how that might have carried over in some way to your orientation when you were writing spells, even if a character isn't mm-hmm. actually carrying carrying over. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one thing to say that in explicit ways there aren't connections between characters, but um, in following this idea of the Uber novel, you know, I think I don't know what I'm doing, but you know, 20 years from now I'll have enough perspective to say, oh, this is how this fit in with everything else I was doing. Um, because I think as much as we might try to think that what we're writing is not connected, we're not shedding our skin, and everything really does build, and it's one of the great pleasures of writing, on dissatisfaction with the thing before. Uh, you know, how could I approach this differently, or how could it be um, different than than what it is now? Um, and I think sometimes just 
the wandering and the, the research and the interaction with people that goes into writing a book doesn't necessarily go into the project you're working on, but maybe into the future. And when I was working on the shelter cycle, um, you know, it's very much um, congruent with or in, in league with my life, of course. It's sort of when I wrote my abandonment, I knew I was having a daughter, and I, and I was very anxious about that. When I look at that book, which is the story of a father and a daughter living in the wilderness, I can see my anxiety about how to be a father. You know, what kind of example are you? What advice do you give? Um, and then by the time I wrote The Shelter Cycle, I had two daughters, and I recognized they're asking me questions that were so intense and that I didn't really have answers to big existential questions that I'd been a very sort of um, cynical person growing up surrounded by Mormons. And most of my spiritual ideas were just negative ideas um, as opposed to things. And so I found myself in conversation with people in Montana who really believed in, you know, energy as something that was changeable, that was driving everything, and, and people who had acted on it um, in, you know, in the late 80s and gone underground. And, and it wasn't as if I necessarily believed all of their teachings, but it was a real buffeting, you know, it was a real, really a huge change for me to become a little bit more aware, to become a little bit more sensitive to some things, or to become willing to expose myself as foolish or to recognize some of the things that were driving me. Um, and so spells is sort of, I mean, I think any conversation you have with someone, any story that you tell is based on a series of compromises of what we've agreed is going to be real, what we, how we've agreed time is going to operate, um, how language will operate. And um, I just, I, I think I wanted to try to do away with some of those compromises or some of those agreements to see what would happen. So tell me if this is one of them, because mm -hmm. you've talked before about how it's often better if you're writing about someone who's on drugs mm -hmm. or a dream sequence mm -hmm. to dial down the language, mm -hmm. to make it more um, concrete, maybe even flat, and that you were trying to do that with mm -hmm. the shelter cycle, but that you sort of went the other way with spells. Like you gave yourself permission to um, dial up the dreamlike quality and maybe even dial up the prose yeah. in the dreams yeah. in a way that is counter to what maybe it was your aesthetic prior to that. Right. Um, and is, do you feel like that is a product of maybe feeling less cynical about the, um, the metaphysical questions that mm -hmm. arose out of uh, uh, interacting with this religious group? I think, I think definitely that's true. I think also it's just getting older in, in some ways, and I don't want to act as if I'm super old, but um, I think that in my 30s and 40s maybe it's just like I, I think especially in, in our 20s and 30s we do resist things that are nostalgic things that are sentimental um, and I sort of have come around in a way to want people to take the risk of seeming like they're too sentimental to be uncomfortable in that way um, and I think I do agree that if you're writing about something that is invisible try to make it as concrete as possible so the shelter cycle the, the prose in that book is very concrete, and I tried to keep it as straight as I could. And so I was reacting a little bit to that. I think every writer has a tendency or um, a skill early on, and my skill was always voice or ventriloquism of some kind, and eventually I came to suspect that. And, you know, I, I, 
I, when I teach Hemingway, I talk about how a teacher gave me Hemingway um, in our time, his first book of stories in college, and I thought it was so dumb. I, th- I, you know, I thought it was ridiculous <laughs> that someone would give me this book. And it was years later that I read those stories again and thought, this is exactly what I can't do. Um, and so I spent a lot of time not trying to write like Hemingway, but trying to figure out how to write with dialogue and action and less voice. Um, but yeah, I think there are two kind of strands to this answer too, like it's forking now, that um, when I wanted to write stories and when I realized I wanted to write something shorter, I recognized, first of all, that stories are the medium that I talk about when I teach. And I've kind of, I mean, it's it's funny to think about the story collection, The Unsettling, which seems so long ago to me, um, because back then I did write stories that were kind of of a conventional length and there were short stories as we understand them. But without consciously deciding it, I just stopped writing stories like that because I didn't have the time really, because I, when I was writing, I was writing something longer, but also mostly because I was talking about stories all the time and I'm so conscious of technical decisions and I just wanted to get that kind of thinking away from me when I was actually writing. But part of it, too, is voice. Like, I wanted to push things a little bit. I wanted to push the language enough where it got a little bit uncomfortable, where it seemed like it was kind of the point, where you were reminded that it was writing uh, in, in some way. And that is not the way I'd been thinking for a long time. And I, and I guess whether it is questions of tone or voice or if it's questions of even kinds of narrators, I tend to, or, or, you know, writing autobiographically, I tend to find that if I say sometime that I will never do something, that I'm probably about to do it. Hmm. Given that you're talking about a mm-hmm. forked answer, mm-hmm. let's have you read uh, A Snake's Tongue is Forked. Okay. So... It's funny when I was talking about collaboration with To Begin Is To Start, it's always also a collaboration with other things that you've written. So there are a lot of photographs of snakes that I got from the photographers, and I don't know if there's one photograph of a snake in the whole book, mm. but the book has a lot of snakes in it, and, and snakes get kind of gain their own momentum. So you see in To Begin Is To Start, recognizing the zipper's teeth as a snake's teeth and riffing on that. Um, But to begin is to start came quite a bit after a snake's tongue is forked. And a snake's tongue is forked is, I think, the first thing that I wrote in the book. And it's generated from a photograph by Shana Millette, which is a photograph, um, one of my favorites, of a piece of wallpaper that is cracked. A snake's tongue is forked. Everyone's heard of a hoop snake. It takes its tail in its mouth and rolls like a hoop, like a wheel, chasing a person or child or animal. It has a stinger on its tail, and if the snake rolls into a tree, if the stinger gets stuck in a tree, that tree will die. She might have seen one, a hoop snake might say she has. Tonight she's in the bedroom where no one sleeps anymore, where the furniture is gone and the window is dirty and the flowered wallpaper is cracked. What brought her here into this room where her grandmother died, here in the night with her face pressed against the wall? She followed a crack in the basement cement floor where it bent and forked along the wall next to the stairs, across the door frame, across the kitchen tiles. It is a line, a map, a piece of string to follow, wound tight around the house, squeezing all the time and the people in the rooms in those times, all the conversations and misunderstandings. 
A crack is a snake. A snake is a line, a forking line. Is a snake's tongue forked? A snake's tongue is forked. The roses in the wallpaper, the carnations, the vines cut in two by the crack. So they should fall, but they do not fall. She leans close, her nose almost touching, her eyelashes brushing the wall. Pay attention. There are other layers, old paper, the choices of other people, the smell of old paste that would go to powder if she took hold of the crack and tore it open, spilling the snake all lengthwise. If you sneak up behind a rattlesnake and take it by the tail, crack it like a whip, you can snap the head clean off its body. What if the head flipped back and bit you, in the hand or neck or face, if there was still venom in its fangs? There's a difference between poisonous and venomous. You should know it, should learn it. Heads without bodies are more dangerous somehow, more desperate and unpredictable, not moving in any way that is a pleasure to see, never saying anything you want to hear. She is intent, not losing her way, following each fork, doubling back. In the window behind her, a black dog could be running up the street, a full moon hanging, a head, A human head could float past, faintly smiling behind the glass. A snake cannot move on a sheet of glass. A snake on ice is useless. Snakes are shy creatures, and we are only beginning to find out more about how they live. A bird or a mammal, these are animals that can learn from experience. Snakes are deaf and have no eyelids and cannot learn like this. Once she saw a snake's head loose in the garden, its long body divided into five pieces by the blade of a mower. Joint snakes, if you hit one, it breaks up into pieces as long as your finger. A bull snake blows like a bull when it gets riled. A coach whip snake has a braided tail. It'll wrap around a person or animal and whip with its plated tail until that person or child or animal has run themselves to death. She moves slowly, carefully. She is halfway through the house. She wonders if the crack is circular, if it will connect to itself like a hoop snake, or if it will never end. A snake will not stop growing because its enclosure is small. That is a myth. She believes all sorts of things. She is willing. She will follow anything that pulls her attention. This wallpaper is flocked, its vertical strips. The white flowers pressing up through the gray, the foliage, leaves holding the cool shadows below, the space where a snake can sleep or hide or be discovered, where it might slip into the open, peek its head out from under, its red tongue keeping time. Remember the joint snake all broken up, left behind in the yard? If you don't bury the head, if you leave it out with the rest, it will search for the other pieces, sniffing here and there with its tongue jerking in and out. By morning, that snake will be whole again. We've been listening to Peter Rock read from his latest book, Spells. You were asked in one interview, Peter, if you you considered yourself a magical realist, and you said no that you loved the work of Julio Cortazar and Gabriel Garcia Marquez, but that you found that Marquez, that what he gained in wonder, it did so at the expense of tension. And you then talked about an essay by Cortazar called On the Environs of the Short Story, where he warns against what he calls the full-time fantastic. He says, the extraordinary must become the rule without displacing the ordinary structures in which it is inserted. And you riff off of this by saying that the power of experience and description that diverges from what we consider normal reality is contingent upon these flights 
uh, and Windows being connected to the world we agree upon. That the fact that everything is, isn't possible is actually an asset to uh, the fantastical in the story. I was curious about these thoughts in relationship mm -hmm. to spells, because we have this tension in the mm -hmm. book, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, around narrative and mm -hmm. progression. Right. Uh, and uh, this more dreamlike quality where you could enter mm -hmm. the book and put it down as you would like. Right. So um, how do you deal with this question of, say, Marquez, where for you at least, you feel like there's a lot of wonder and no tension. Mm -hmm. How do you preserve the what happens next mm -hmm. in, in spells? Or do mm -hmm. you? Or do you, do you abandon it? I think, um, I mean, there are different ways to think about tension. And, and um, I would hate to get a lot of hate mail about Marquez, who, whom I love also. But I think there are pieces of his, the novels especially, where um, you, you could take a lot of pages out and you'd miss a lot of beautiful writing, but you wouldn't necessarily miss what was going on. I just reread Chronicle of a Death Foretold um, the other day, and you couldn't take anything out of that book. And mm. if you want to talk about moving around in time, that's really astounding. Um, I guess I would I would say that it's it really is about um, communication, like making a decision to try to communicate something that is personal to 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 someone who isn't you, and that that's really hard. And to do that. Um, you have to figure out how to get them interested. And so tension is such a crucial thing about writing, and it's so poorly understood, and it's so specific to every everything that you write. But part of it is just writing the beginning of something that is going to get a reader wondering what's going to happen or wanting to read on. So there's a tension of what happens next, cause and effect, and that happens in this book. Um, but there's also a tension of, about what comes next, which is sort of like what kind of story will come next, um, which hopefully is, as the, as the world becomes wider and broader and, and more amorphous, and there still are causes and, and effects, um, part of the tension is between the kinds of stories, and part of the tension is hopefully in the language between the stories. So there's an energy in the language that creates a tension that is, that is an electricity that carries you on. Um, but I think a lot of times in storytelling, the tension is, you know, attention is always between two things or between more than two things. And, and the tension can be between the text and the reader, but a lot of times, of course, the, t the tension is between the characters. And so trying to figure out what the relationship is between people and how that will change and how you can build up a kind of expectation in the characters for how the other person will be, but also in the reader for what, what would become of these relationships. So those are all things that I'm sort of aware of um, especially in editing, you know, when I'm teaching and also when I'm writing, I always think that um, the advantage of having written a lot is having made a lot of mistakes and having seen, you know, those mistakes and trying to own them. Um, but being super smart about writing stories is not going to help you write better stories. It's going to help you edit them. It's going to help you in revision. So all of these questions of like, where is tension coming from? Like, I think when I'm writing something, I feel energized. I feel energetic. Um, and that hopefully is conveyed. But a lot of wondering about how that tension might be shared or how someone might be intrigued or how curiosity might be piqued. A lot of that technical work is in revision. And that is where, you know, if you have worked on becoming smarter about writing, you can bring that to bear. Well, I like how you, you frame a different form of possible uh, what happens next in the sense that I do feel like as a reader of spells, I'm less, um, 
I mean, I'm interested in what's going to happen to the characters. It's not that I'm not interested, mm-hmm. but I'm more interested to see what are you going to dream up next on mm-hmm. on page mm-hmm. X. Mm-hmm. That's going to also carry those characters forward, but mm-hmm. in a really strange way. Yeah. Uh, on that level, let's let's have you read another really short piece, okay. um, just for variety's sake, so we can hear like how these these different sections sound really different from each other. So, if a person is about to touch you, it would be. I think a good example. Okay. I believe this is also, I sometimes forget. I think it's a photograph by Shana Millette and it's a photograph of a hand. Uh, it's, it's a little, the background's a little blurry. The hand is just kind of floating. If a person is about to touch you, if a person is about to touch you, you can already feel it. If you are about to meet someone, your body may already know it, a tremor in your organs. If a hand hovers above your bare skin, you can sense its presence. That's the simple, invisible way a hand can convey its intentions, which are, after all, a kind of thinking. Hands have brains and hearts. Every finger does. This can be proved by the delay, the time it takes to understand what our hands have done and why. Hands. They are the vehicles of intuition. When I am beset by emotion, when I think of something, that's when I ask my hands for assistance. And then, when my hands suddenly do something... That is the time for me to react. They're out in front of me. They're almost always in front of me, in my field of vision, the part of myself that I know best. When I see my face in a mirror, I am often startled or disappointed. My hands would never surprise me like that. I recognize them, reaching out for you. We're listening to Peter Rock read from Spells. There's another interview you did that I really enjoyed uh, in After Image magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes the case that you have a long-standing impulse toward ekphrastic writing, mm-hmm. uh, ekphrasis being engaging with uh, and bringing to life visual art using words. Um, so Longmire, the author, makes a connection between your use of photographs and spells and your use of news items and my abandonment and actual historical events in the shelter cycle. I'm not entirely convinced that this mm-hmm. is a, a strong argument that mm-hmm. they're all ekphrastic. But it does seem like they share an outward look for inspiration, that you're looking away from yourself mm-hmm. as a form mm-hmm. to, uh, as a way to begin or as a, a way to inspire uh, the projects. And I was wondering if that seems, does that, do you rebel against that thought or does that seem? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's always funny because I'm not aware of, of things when I'm doing them. And it's sort of, um, I, of course, love talking to you. And then I also have this sense of what I have to say about things that I did in the past is pretty suspicious. Um, I can see that a little bit. And as I said before, I can recognize that I'm reacting to things, which is the key. Um, And that I'm, I mean, everyone writes about things that interest them. And so trying to figure out what interests you specifically, as opposed to everyone, I think is important. And then trying to figure out what that is going to generate. is a question. And so I think that, I mean, looking forward to the things that I'm working on now or things that are, um, you know, maybe in the future, I think it, it, it is sort of possible to see this as a reaction, but it also, it causes us to have to define what is an artwork and what is a piece of history and, and how, how are these things different, which I'm not sure I'm ready to go into necessarily. Um, but I think that we all, I mean, I was 
as someone who doesn't write much nonfiction, but who teaches a lot of it and reads a lot of creative nonfiction, I feel like there's always so much self-presentation, whether it's implicit or explicit in, in nonfiction. I feel like fiction, most of the time we're pretty unconscious of, of how we're revealing ourselves. So I feel like it's a, it's a much more cloudy mirror, but I think it's a truer reflection of, of what, of what is going on with us. So, um, but I think a lot of it, like I've been thinking a lot about, um, Charles Birchfield lately, and I've been writing about his painting and, you know, he was a painter who died in 67 when I was born and who had a, and he's sort of like a American fauvist or something. And he lived in the Midwest and, and wrote and, and painted these very spiritual landscapes in watercolor, especially when he was in his early 20s, I guess. Um, and then he became kind of a realist for a long time in his life. And the last 20 years of his life, he went back to those early paintings and felt like he lost something and tried to work on them some more, add to them or add new sheets of paper. Um, but reading his writing to his journals has been so informative for me. Um, and I think that I guess... You know, I see the ways that I get so excited when I'm writing something and the ways that I find the making of things to be such a sweet possession is easier for me to recognize in other art forms than it is in writing. Like, I'm not that interested in hearing writers talk about writing, generally speaking, but to hear a painter talk about, like, to read the interviews of Francis Bacon or something or to read the amazing journals of Birchfield, um, who is just a great example for me in many ways, um, both as a really devoted family man and as someone who is just so true to a spiritual quest that was so um, divorced from so much of what was going on in the world at that time. I think um, that that I find really interesting. Hmm. Well, let me, let me push deeper into this question a little bit. You've talked before about how your career is, is littered with lost books, mm-hmm. books where you've you've completed drafts Mm -hmm. that haven't been published. So in between some of your published books, there are these lost books Mm -hmm. and that, um, these books tend to be more autobiographical Uh and that they tend to be closer to your point of view as who you are in Mm -hmm. the world as a non-writer, um, age, gender. Uh Uh, do you have any thoughts on why, why you think that is? Why are the books that that don't end up cohering or that you don't feel like are ready for um, or function outside of your relationship to them um, are tend to be more that way. I think, yeah, I mean, that sounds so great. Um, and, and I know I said it, but I think maybe it's a simplification, <laughs> yeah. but I think that is true. I think I've failed and I, and I have this new book coming out, which is maybe the first time that it's something is going to come out. That's like this. But I, I recognize what the problem is, or one of the problems, which is that um, when I write autobiographically, I already believe all of the things, you know, and so I don't, the writing isn't the same process. When I'm writing from the perspective of an old man, or I'm writing from the perspective of a young girl, um, like thinking about my abandonment, um, I have to convince myself of that person. I have to convince myself of that voice. I do a lot of work to get there. And that, I think, is what translates to the readers, that belief. I think it's harder to, for me to make a reader believe in my own life because I don't have to do that work, and that work is the writing. And so I think that is, is a little bit yeah. true. I think it's true, too, that there are a lot—I mean, I was 
listening to that excellent introduction that you gave when we started to talk, and uh, I thought, that sounds so great. Like, who is this guy? It's so impressive. <laughs> uh, when actually it's just so humiliating a lot of the time. And, you know, even selling a book now is sort of like I'm, I sell books for the same amount of money that I sold books in 1997, you know, and, it, and it's hard to find someone who will do it based on how the last book did or whatever. Um, but I'm not that, fortunately, I don't need that. You know, I'm not that interested in in it all the time. And I'm not convinced that some of the books are not, you know, that, that haven't come out aren't as good or better. Um, I was writing as an experiment, three different books at a time. Um, and one was my abandonment. And one was um, a book about there's a character in that book named Nameless, who's a person who's trying to sort of cast off being a human being. And I wrote a whole story, a whole novel about that character, Nameless. And whenever I talk about it, people say, well, what, you know, and even I think my agent, because I gave him both of these books, um, was just like, well, what about that book? What is going on? I felt like it didn't have its own obsession in some ways. It was reaching for the other books to make connections. But I also just... I lost the thread in a way. Like I'm not going to go back and work on something now when there are new things that are calling to me. But I think a lot of it does have to do with, um, you know, we really get at something or we really express who we are as a person when we're paying attention to something else. Um, when we're paying attention to ourselves, there's just so much clutter. You know, there's, there's so much self-consciousness that is problematic for mm -hmm. me. And you talked at the beginning of the episode about this coming out of procrastination mm -hmm. and that you've also talked to your students about how to harness the energy of procrastination. Mm -hmm. Is that somehow connected? This idea of, of looking elsewhere and then taking the energy of that impulse to do it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it's sort of... Um... I think it's easy to believe, especially when one is a student, that there are times when you're writing and that there are times when you're not writing. And um, I think trying to see, a, you know, one's life as a kind of practice um, where one is always writing in some way. And sometimes that involves putting a pen to paper and sometimes it doesn't. But one big step for me is just not worrying that much about it when I'm not writing um, but to recognize that there are a lot of things going on that eventually I will be able to use. But being aware, but also actively seeking out information, actively seeking out things that you don't know about, um, and and trying to gather material without knowing what you're going to do with it is has been always um, the most helpful thing for me. Well, if we were to look at your where you gravitate towards as a writer in terms of point of view, it's it seems like it's very often childhood or adolescence mm -hmm. and and more often than not a female point of view right do you have any you know stories you tell yourself on why you think that is are there mm -hmm. are there specific advantages um either in terms of activating your imagination or the uh maybe the distance between what the adult reader feels versus the child mm -hmm. uh, protagonist that you find compelling when you're when you're putting together a, a narrative um, yeah, I mean, I guess it does fall into sort of stories I tell myself in retrospect of why this is so. Um, I think that I did, I mean, part of it is just immaturity. Like, I think I, I think I did write a bunch of books without, like, looking back to the ambidextrous and the bewildered, where the, a lot of the characters were teenagers. And I didn't know why. I didn't, 
I wasn't sure why that was the case. And I think it partially it was that that's such a rich time. It's like a lot of adult experiences happen to us for the first time then. And, and they're not clouded by repetition in any way. And it's the first time when we have freedom from being watched all the time. And we don't have responsibilities like jobs either. So it's a, it's a very rich window of sort of things happening and figuring out who we're going to be. And one time, I think even on the radio, I was talking about this and someone called in who was a child psychologist and said, you know, that period of time between 11 and 14 is when our sense of self develops and when we get a feeling for who we are with regard to the world, like how we fit in, how we understand things. And no matter what we do for the rest of our life, you could kind of track it back to that time. Like our, our understanding doesn't change that much. So that's, that's part of it. Um, part of it too, writing from female perspective, um, when I was thinking about my abandonment, that was, you know, inspired by a real story. And I was thinking about the reasons why people were interested in it. The reasons I was interested in it, um, had a lot to do with this sense of wonder. And if I had chosen a different perspective, it would have been a story that was much more about homelessness and maybe PTSD um, in a more explicit way. Um, but I wanted to be a little bit delusional in its wonder. And I realized that it had to come from this perspective. And that was around the time I referenced this earlier when I was thinking, like, I just feel like young narrators are so manipulative and so precious. And so trying to figure out how to do that on my own terms was part of it. But I recognized that I, if I wanted to write that book, to be true to the things that fascinated me about the true story, it had to be her story. Um, I think it's probably true that I prefer women to men, which is, um, there are probably upsides and downsides to that. Um, but I think it's a very explicit way that signals to me as when I'm writing something that's not me. Um, but if you look at that book, and if I look at it now, I see, oh, this is a character who is being told a lot of things about the world by her father that she doesn't quite understand a lot of directions from an, an authority figure that are hard to bring into alignment, a person who is lonely, who really wants friends. Like, these are all things that personally I know. Like, this is me. Um, and so it's not as if I'm I'm ever escaping myself. I don't think that happens when you're writing. But it's a way to get at those things without being hyper-aware of what I'm writing about. Well, I'm going to try to maybe make a forced connection, but okay. but you and you were talking about wonder, uh -huh. and at the beginning, how when the first photographer you talked to writes you this letter mm -hmm. full of all of these question, right. questions, deep, maybe mm -hmm. unanswerable mm -hmm. questions, which in some respects prompted you to want to write a book that was more playful mm -hmm. and full of wonder. Mm -hmm. um, you've also talked about writing in order to think backwards to get to a place where you can entertain questions that adults no longer entertain. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Baudelaire's journals mm -hmm. where he asks questions, which kind of, I mean, they're not the same, but they kind of remind me of this photographer's questions. Where do our dead friends go? Or what a loss it is that we are unable to communicate with our friends, the animals. And these questions he's not asking with any irony. He's asking them mm -hmm. earnestly. Mm -hmm. Almost childlike, right? Um, right. And so I, I'm curious if that might be part of the gravitation towards that point of view, also, as a writer. Yeah, I mean, certainly the there's nothing 
in any moment in my day that isn't informed by the fact that I have children. And so my conversations with them, which is something I've been writing about too, is sort of, you know, they, when, when I was working on the shelter cycle, the, the church universal and triumphant, which was the church, one of the, the like their big beliefs was that they had a lot of beliefs around children and, and you should pay careful attention to the things that they said because they were still kind of in touch with the spheres and they hadn't been told, they hadn't been corrected yet, and they hadn't been told what to believe. Like if they were talking about things, they were talking about things that were in the ether, things from their previous lives, and we should write everything down and pay attention to that. So there, there is something about that, you know, that sense of wonder that you want to maintain, but I think there's also a way um, getting to be 50 where, where you feel like, okay, my, like half of my time is gone. Like what... Um, how how can I stop being so cynical about things? You know, how, how can I admit the things I don't know? Um, how can I, without being insufferably twee, try to engage with this um, this confusion that I feel? And and in that regard, um, one of the constraints that you had at the beginning also was you wanted to preserve a certain naivete or or lack of knowledge around both the photographers and what the photographers mm-hmm. were portraying with the photographs. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you learned anything since then, since the book has come out that, uh, that has stuck with you. Yeah. I mean, I that mean, might not have formed the narrative, but like, wow, that photograph was this, or this photographer, I had no clue that that's what this photographer was all about. Even because you were right. creating a, an intentional not knowing. Right. And it's sort of, I mean, we collaborate, I think, in order to do things that we wouldn't do on our own. And I've you know, started other projects and thought about them based on my reactions to this one. And this collaboration is very controlled by me. Um, like, I'm collaborating with people's photographs, but they didn't get to collaborate in terms of reacting to my writing. I, um, so, as you said, when I, sent, when, I, when I first communicated with the photographers, I said, I don't want to know anything about you. I don't want to know any context for these photographs. You just don't tell me anything. And that worked out pretty well. Um, but then it was interesting because over once I finished writing and, and I was in communication with them all the time, I would pick up things. And then sometimes people would come to town. And so uh, Colleen Plum came to town to have a show at Blue Sky and I got to know her fairly well. And I've met four of the five photographers now, um, which is eerie. I mean, I, I guess I collaborate sometimes with with people when I write books. And I, my relationship with them is so intense. And their relationship to me is not that intense. So when I meet them, I feel like we've been in this communion for years. <laughs> and they just think I'm super creepy. But with the photographs, and it, it is sort of interesting, like that picture of the wallpaper um, when I talked to Shana about it and she read the piece, she, you know, oftentimes people will say, this is not what is going on in this photograph, but the emotions that you're conjuring is, are very much in accordance with where this is coming from. You know, they'll tell me the story of burying the dog um, and who the dog was and what happened. And, and they have found, I think, often illumination and, and intrigue and how the how their photographs have managed to sort of project what was going on at, at, at that moment in a kind of oblique way. So that's I kind of considered, and I, I asked so much of them already, but I almost wanted them all to write something in that maybe in the acknowledgments about specific photographs, like what where it is actually, what is happening, how this differs from the story, like what they think about it. Yeah. Um, 
And in different times, I think they have in different places. Um, but I, I sort of wish that that could have been something that had been part of it. Like, I feel like it's very much my project and that they are so crucial to helping me, but they're their words and i mean in some ways their words are not here and they they're people who speak through images so even sometimes i would write something and i give it to them and i would expect them to read it right away and have a lot of opinions but they're they're not people necessarily who read a lot like that's not that's my game that's not their game they took right. the photos and so that was good for me to recognize also well it was it was satisfying for me to read there's an interview with Colleen Plum mm-hmm. the photo- one of your photographers and she says the experience of of providing you the photos, but then abandoning control and then seeing what you picked and how you use them, that it's has since influenced her to take more seriously certain photos that she hadn't considered seriously simply because they were family photos uh-huh. or images that had been more metaphoric or emotional with emotional intentions behind them. Right. And now in her own work, she's finding that she can see things in the photographs Mm-hmm. Uh, the value of a photograph that is more metaphoric or has more emotions. That's pretty cool mm-hmm. that it's, I mean, it's created this outside of the book, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, I would love to take credit for that. I mean, she's an amazingly talented, smart person. Um, and so is really fortunate. Yeah. And she also said this experience around, you have these audio visual mm-hmm. uh, videos mm-hmm. where the, the photos have been, like semi-animated essentially and her experience of reading it of watching one of her photos made into these videos reminded me a little bit of the that john berger series from the 70s uh ways of seeing where Mm -hmm. he shows Mm -hmm. the a painting and then puts different music and the painting looks entirely different yeah yeah she's like seeing her photo and it's as if she's never seen her photo before right it's pretty amazing. Right. And those videos, I mean, it's, that's another level of collaboration where we're, when it became a gallery show, is a question of how to show this because people don't want to stand in front of an image for three minutes, even if they can stream the audio, which they could, and could videos be made? And then this challenge of how do you make something that's static, visually interesting? And um, and Matt Eller, who's, who's a man who lives in town, he has a company called Afternoon Inc., um, took this on and he's also a genius um, as is John Askew who did the music Um, and so these guys were working on making those videos and and it was so one of the strangest things to me and one of the most humbling things to me was throughout the process how great the photographers were as I said before about how excited they were to let me do whatever I wanted but then in retrospect I understood that a little bit better because what I was doing was paying really close attention to something they made for hours and days and weeks and months and when John and Matt were working on the videos they would CC me on various emails they were sending back and forth at three in the morning about things and I would think these guys are so crazy Um, but I was so and they would be worried that I would be uptight about something and I was just so touched and excited that they were spending their time and their talents to try to make this work out in some way and so and those are all you know visible on my website and stuff I think that um, they are really mesmeric and strange and um, there's something in seeing that for me too which is giving up control which is something that on a basic level is what the hope is when we're writing something Um, And which is something I'm trying to teach the students all the time that, you know, you're not going to be able to hopefully 
travel around and be everywhere someone reads your work. You're not going to be able to explain it to them. They're going to have their own take on it. And one dream for many of us is to have people who aren't our friends and family read things that we write, and they're going to have a lot of freedom. So it was really nice to see people take seriously what I was doing and to do their own thing with it. It was great. So uh, what can we expect from you next, Peter Rock? Oh, some of it is so top secret I can't think about it. Um, can you talk, can you talk about, about uh, um, My Abandonment film project? Um, yeah, I mean, that's another kind of collaboration. So My Abandonment, um, even before it came out as a book, these producers bought it and optioned it. And it's happened to me before with other books, um, but there's always been a part of that deal where it was, and you get to write the screenplay, and if it gets into production, then you'll get paid for that. And I learned a lot about different media. I learned a lot about dialogue doing that, but it never really worked out. This one, it seemed more likely to me because they didn't want me to do the screenplay, but I got lucky in that the woman who adapted it, Deborah Granick, is a really great director and a really interesting, you know, genius filmmaker thinker. And she had made a film that I liked um, quite a bit, Winter's Bone, Um, was her last film and she had adapted that from a Daniel Woodrow book which I liked also so I felt like I was in good hands and we talked a lot about the adaptation and the changes she made but it's very much different than the book and her thing and I kind of liked it that way and they shot it last summer and I think it's you know hopefully we'll be at Sundance in January February so the it's pretty soon here we'll see I'll see the first cuts of it um, but it was, it'll be beautiful. I don't know if it'll be a great film. Hopefully it will be. But the things I've seen, um, I mean, we're fortunate that we live in a beautiful place and they found amazing places to shoot. And I think the performances are great. And it was just for me another kind of dissociation to see something that is very much internalized in my mind um, taken in a different direction or like have actual people who don't look exactly like the people I had in mind um, in places that are different than what I thought they would look like, um, saying things that I wrote, um, sometimes saying things that I didn't write, or seeing a director play one scene 20 different times really reminds me of writing a paragraph and taking it apart and putting Mm -hmm. it together. But then it's just the, the catering or all the, all the dudes with duct tape running around you know it's just like I feel like I did this 12 years ago I was in my basement and somehow this has happened so I'm really curious to see what it looks like um, but I it is never my dream really to have a, a film made of my book so it's, it's it's also just kind of a little bit silly uh, but in but terms you're of kind of in the role of the photog that the photographers are in right with you, right right but with the film right I guess I don't feel like it's silly. I feel like it's silly because I get congratulated for it often, and I feel like I I didn't really do anything except long ago I did a thing. And so <laughs> um, it it's wonderful to see that someone throwing their energy into it and, and making something that I couldn't do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that is very cool. And to talk more about myself, um, I do have this book coming out, which is called The Weather, um, which will come out in 2019. And that's a book which... Um, draws on a lot of artifacts of my life in 1994, which was a particularly bleak time, and um, kind of tries to figure out what was going on at that time. But it it also involves a lot of things that are going on in my life now. So a lot of conversations with my daughters, a lot of writing about Charles Birchfield, who I've talked about, a lot of um, 
you know, interactions with former girlfriends trying to figure out whether or not we ever broke up, um, you know, <laughs> letters, the, the letters that I wrote, really uncomfortable things. Um, and so so that I'm still working on, but it, it will come out, and I'm curious to see how that will go. Yeah. Well, it's great having you on the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. We're talking today to writer Peter Rock about his latest book, Spells, a novel and photographs from Counterpoint. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening. <laughs>